Throughout Lent, we've been reading passages that help us think about the various meanings and understanding of the cross and how it is called to help us respond in faith. And as I shared when Lent began, there are some weeks that will fill us with inspiration and wrap us in love. And there are some weeks during Lent that are a little more challenging. And this is one of those challenging weeks. So listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church from 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 21 to 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he entrusted himself to the, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin we might live for righteousness. And by his wounds we have been healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So every Monday morning, I log on to Zoom for Partner with the Preacher with a number of you in this room. It's one of my favorite parts of the week. We study the passage for the coming Sunday together, and through this group, I gain fresh insight and have the chance to look at Scripture with fresh eyes, and we wrestle together and we disagree sometimes, and it's beautiful. But sometimes I choose a passage, like this morning's, and the group sort of looks at me like I have three heads and signs off saying things like, good luck, can't wait to hear how you preach this one, as if to say she must have lost her mind. And today is one of those hard texts that can get us into all kinds of trouble. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Is First Peter glorifying suffering? And what kind of a savior anyway would call us to suffer? I spent a lot of this week wondering if I should have picked a different passage after all, but now that we've read it together, now that we've acknowledged that it's in our Bible, we can't just ignore it. And if there is indeed a season for us to wrestle about a passage on suffering, it's Lent as we journey toward the cross. So if you dare... Let's dive in together. It perhaps helps to put this morning's text in a little bit of context. We don't often read 1 Peter. So Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are, in fact, suffering. It's not so much that Peter is calling them to suffer as acknowledging their present reality. This is a group of people who are experiencing persecution and suffering unjustly at the hands of the empire. They're being judged because they're living faithfully to God's word. But the Christian life, 
runs counter to the Roman culture in the same ways that it sometimes runs counter to our own culture today. Their experiences of suffering come from loving God above Caesar to the point that they've been accused of sedition. And so Peter starts out in this letter strong. He starts out in the opening chapter encouraging faithfulness for everyone within the house, men, women, children, even slaves, writing that even if you have to suffer various trials, the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, Peter says, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering may come, he's saying, but keep your focus on Christ and live faithfully in the way of love, regardless of the judging eye of the culture around you, and you will be, in Peter's words, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own people. And within this call to faithfulness, then Peter unpacks how we're to live by example, by the example of Christ and Christ crucified. It won't be easy, he says, but no one ever promised that faithfulness comes without a cost. So Peter addresses Christian households and says to all of them, you are called, chosen, God's own beloved. But then he starts to unpack what that means for each member of the Christian household, the way we're to reflect that faithfulness to God in Christ. And that's where things get a little dicey. Because today's verses that I pulled out of this, uh, this book are addressed specifically to the slaves in a Roman Christian house. They're surrounded by verses that no, none of us want to read out loud that say things like, slaves accept the authority of your masters, bookended by none other than wives be subject to your husbands. This isn't news that we really want to find in the Bible. Jesus didn't die on the cross for that, right? Preacher, you must be mistaken. Within the cultural context of the early church, though, slaves were a part of many Roman households, including Christian ones. Perhaps the first surprising news of this text is that Peter acknowledges that the slaves in these houses are part of God's redemptive story in Christ. They're part of the royal priesthood, and as such, they're called to live in love even when the road is hard. And while their inclusion is good news, I also think we can't whitewash or skirt around the fact that the instruction to slaves is that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's problematic, right? And it gets more problematic when we start to think about the way this text has been used in history because you don't have to have a lot of imagination to know how this text has been misused. It's been used by oppressors to justify their abuse of slaves. It's a text that's been used by slave owners to support slavery in the name of Jesus. It's a text that's been used by the church to endorse slavery, to justify suffering particularly the suffering of the oppressed by their oppressors. In Christ's suffering, Christ sets an example for you as slaves to suffer is how that text has been interpreted. Yikes! And so before we proceed any further, 
We have to repent here and now of those misreadings and the harm that has been done through them throughout history. And then we get to ask ourselves, what do we do with a troubling text? Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner himself, took the approach of just cutting them out. The legend goes that Jefferson took a razor and clipped out any verse of the Bible that he didn't think belonged in the canon. But what it left him with was a very tattered Bible. Alternatively, last fall on the All Church Retreat, our keynoter, Dr. Chris Holmes, helped us wrestle with that very question. He said, what do you do when the Bible, this text we hold up as authoritative, what do you do when it gives you indigestion? If we don't want to simply deny or dismiss these passages that make us uncomfortable, then what then? He said, we have a handful of options. The first is that a text can call us to confess and repent. And this text certainly does that. So for the ways that we have misused God's word to oppress and enslave others, forgive us. Sometimes these texts call us to lament, to weep with those who suffer, to cry out for those seeking justice. Sometimes we're called to help place these texts in their history and culture, and then to ask, is there any way that God's grace might still break through? And all of those are fitting here. But Chris ended our fall retreat reminding us that sometimes, sometimes we're called like Jacob in the Old Testament at Peniel to wrestle with God, to not let go without a blessing, even if it means we walk away limping. So as we approach this text, we acknowledge that Peter is preaching into a world where there is deep suffering, Suffering at the hands of the empire, suffering because of slavery, suffering for those who were trying to be faithful to the gospel, suffering that they had witnessed in Christ on the cross. Suffering was a reality for them just as it still is in our world today. And the pain of the world should not be denied or swept under the rug. And Peter's not actually justifying harming another human being, though our historical misreadings of the text have done just that. Instead, he's trying to make meaning out of the suffering that's happening at every level of the Christian community, even the slaves, and trying to make sense of the fact that the suffering comes because of their faithfulness to God. And so we ask that question, is there anything redemptive here? Can we hang on like Jacob long enough to receive a blessing? And how is Jesus suffering on the cross an example in a way that still might yet be good news? Perhaps it helps us to ask, what do these verses teach us about God? And when we turn our eyes to the cross, to Jesus crucified, we find a God who suffers with us and for us, but most importantly, a God who does not let suffering have the final word. Throughout Scripture, God is relentlessly faithful in attending to the suffering of the world. 
God sees the suffering of Hagar cast into the wilderness, the suffering of the Israelites in slavery, the suffering of exiles displaced from their homes, the suffering of those persecuted for righteousness' sake. God bears witness to the suffering of the people at the hands of oppressors and does not turn away all throughout the Bible. And when God sends Jesus to be God with us, we see a God who again and again draws near to those who are hurting. Jesus runs toward us, toward those who are struggling, toward the least of these, the broken, the untouchable, the unnamed, the forgotten. And Jesus offers grace and friendship and healing and life to those who suffer. His fidelity to God and his love for those who are suffering meant that he joined the ranks of those who upset the oppressive powers to the point that Jesus the Christ, God with us, experienced suffering himself on the cross. On the cross, God doesn't shy away from the pain of the world, but suffers with us and for us. We worship a God who has gone to the darkest places we can imagine, who walks through the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist says. And we have a God who we can trust to usher us, to shepherd us through those places, precisely because God understands the terrain. And yet, and perhaps most importantly, that suffering does not get to have the final word. Not in our darkest places, not even on the cross, because tr Christ triumphs over the power of sin and evil and death. Black liberation theologians in particular have wrestled with this question of God's suffering, wondering what good news can be found in Christ's crucifixion for those whose lives and whose history are rooted in oppression. James Cone writes in his book, The Cross and the Lynching, Lynching Tree, I find nothing redemptive in suffering in itself. He says, suffering for suffering's sake is futile, empty. But then he points us to the voice of womanist theologian Sean Copeland, who remembers that Jesus is an ally and a friend to those who are walking through suffering and pain. And she leans into none other than the African-American spirituals. She says, if the makers of spirituals gloried in suffering, it wasn't because they're masochistic and enjoyed it. Perhaps the enslaved Africans sang because they saw on the rugged wooden planks one who had endured what was their daily portion. The cross was treasured because it enthroned the one who went all the way with them and for them, and they sang because they saw the results of the cross, triumph over the principalities and powers of death, triumph over evil in the world. On the cross, we find a God who suffers with us and for us and does not let suffering have the final word, thanks be to God. So what are we supposed to do with 1 Peter's call that Christ suffered leaving an example? What example exactly is to be gained? Our late representative John Lewis knew more than his fair share about suffering. 
1965, he and Hosea Williams and others led the march from Selma to Montgomery for voting rights and stopped by troopers on the Pettus Bridge. White troops attacked their nonviolent demonstrators that bloody Sunday, leaving Lewis with a skull fracture. And yet he spent his life advocating for equality for African Americans, even if it meant suffering came his way. Just days before Lewis's death in 2020, he wrote an essay reflecting on his life's work, his experience of suffering and the ongoing work of justice still today. His life, like Dr. King's and others, was rooted in the kind of nonviolent work that reflects Jesus' example. And in his closing essay, he patched the, passed the torch to us, writing, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and to stand up for what you truly believe. He writes, in my life, I've done all that I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is still a more excellent way. Now it's your turn to let freedom ring. Lewis lived a life of faith, striving to live by Christ's example, even if suffering came his way. His fidelity to God's love made known in Christ was exactly the kind of love and response and faithfulness that 1 Peter calls us to. And as we explore, as a congregation, the Matthew 25 initiative, that same invitation is issued to us. What is it that Jesus will do through us to address the suffering of others? Are we willing to let our fidelity to God be more important than our comfort and our security? How will we answer the highest calling of our hearts as the highest calling of Christ? The text today seems to suggest that it begins with repentance of the past, but it also requires us to be willing to risk something of ourselves for the sake of others' suffering because Jesus showed us the way of love and righteousness. Following Jesus' example does not call us to a life of ease. Indeed, it led him to the cross. But because he triumphs over evil, Jesus offers the hope that we need to live by that example. And so just as the African-American spirituals have buoyed the black community, our closing hymn today offers a summons from Christ for us. Will you come and follow me if I but call your name, Jesus says? Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? Will you let my love be shown? Will you let my name be known? Will you let my life be grown in you and you in me? May it be so. Amen.